0: Welcome to Rocking Your Priors. I am your host, Dr. Alice Evans, and with me today is one of the most important sociologists and gender theorists in the world, Professor Celia Ridgway, Professor of Sociology Emerita at Stanford University. Welcome.
1: <laughs> well, thanks a lot for that. I'm happy to be here today. I'm really happy to talk about it.
0: And talk about your amazing new book. So if you haven't read, Professor Ridgway has two superb books framed by gender and also her new book, Status. So, what determines status?
1: Status is really your sense of being uh, how much the community values you compared to others um, and what they think of you. So it's this reflected opinion of other people about it's like a reputation of how much they think you're a person of worth, you're a person of value. And that depends on, on on whether or not you're thought to be good at or contributing to, competent at, the things that society thinks are important.
0: And that can vary by group, by the goal of the group.
1: Absolutely. It varies enormously. I mean, you can be with your uh, card playing uh, buddies and the, and what counts there is competence at that card playing and how you play the game and so on. But you can also be at a neighborhood group and what counts there might be knowing, caring about the neighborhood and broad experience or you can be in the broader society and what counts there is what society thinks are the important things to be doing. Say you're a, a tech whiz or you're some Something of that sort, so that's what uh, that's what status is. And what
0: can status buy you? Like, what is status? Why is status important? Why do we care about status?
1: Well, we care about status for a lot of reasons. But what it buys you as an individual um, uh, is that when people look up to you, they listen to you. You become influential. If I think, wow, that's a person who really. Boy, that person's really got it. They really know what they're talking about. That's that's important stuff. I'm going to listen. And when they say something, I'm inclined to believe it. I'm inclined to go along. Not unequivocally, but there's a bias towards approving of what they say. So you become influential, um, and you're kind of given more authority to do things. You have an impact on what the group and the community does. It's essentially... Um, uh, leading up to leadership. It's um, it's being a person of influence and a person of prominence. You also get attention from others. Most people like that. Uh, uh, people look at you when you come in the room. Okay, so what are the most important determinants of status? Well, there are... Um, the, broadly speaking, as I said, it's other people's perceptions that you have something of value to offer. But it, went from an individual point of view, okay, maybe that's based on, um, I'm a great card player, I'm something like that, I have some skills, I have some merit, I have this job. Maybe it's something like that about me um, as an individual, my accomplishments. But the thing is that You always have to keep in mind about status and where it can also be a source of injustice is that it's also determined by some of your broad groups you belong to, your identity, say gender or race or social class. And the thing there is society has broad-based cultural status beliefs, beliefs about how in general people who belong to this group are more competent and more worthy at the things that count most in our society than are people who belong to other groups, say men versus women. In our society, white people versus people of color, people of upper middle class or higher and working class people. Um, These kind of contrasts, well, of course, you can have whatever kind of personal skills, but if people are starting out by looking at you, finding out quickly that you belong to this gender, or that race, or are likely from your cues and dress to belong to this social class, they make, um, they make a prior assumption, oh you're not as important a person, or wow, you're going to be one of the big shots here, and that already biases things in your favor to gain or against you, to, um, to not be able to gain status in the situation independent of what you might call your personal merits, and that's where the injustice of status comes in.
0: Right, so a mediocre white man might be given the benefit of the doubt, whereas a woman might be doubted if she's in tech, for example.
1: That's exactly right. What, um, uh, for instance, that uh, sometimes called double standards of judgment and value. some um, People, uh, Joan Williams, a legal scholar, calls it proved it again bias, that because if you do something and they say, okay, you did it right the first time, but maybe that was luck. Could you do it again? But if they expect it of you, you know, the distinguished looking middle-aged white man who becomes the committee member announces that this is the conclusion of the committee and everybody applauds. <laughs> um... The um, middle-aged African-American woman who heads that committee announces this is the conclusion of the committee, and people say, well, are you sure? Hmm. Is that really true? I mean, can we be confident in this? What evidence do you have?
0: She's not given the same moral authority. Not given
1: the same same authority, credibility. Uh, It's not that she's dismissed altogether, but not the same credibility. So she basically has to work harder to get the same result. Okay, and um, why do these status hierarchies persist? Well, they persist um, for um, the big, broad um, status hierarchies mm. in society, like the ones based on race and gender and class, and and um, occupation. As occupational status as a part of class, um, they persist partly because they uh, all these. Acting, at when people come together and they're working in groups or in the office or in the community, people are just implicitly sizing each other up and listening a little more to this person, a little more to that person. That means if you have those attributes and you go out into your working life and you do whatever, you go into the school, you go into the classroom, um, people have sort of prior assumptions. That prior assumption increases the chances that you're going to come out of that interaction being encouraged to go up or encouraged to go stay where you are or go down and these little things that happen are often very minor they're not necessarily very important but they accumulate time after time you go into this room and this happens you go to the next room in this classroom the teacher doesn't answer your questions right away Uh, in the next room Uh, They don't pick up on what you're saying. uh, In the following one they do, pretty soon Mm. the two kids, the kid who's disfavored, the kid who's favored, diverge. Mm. And this is not necessarily on on the part of any evil intent of, say, the teacher or some authority dealing with you. They're just trying to make sense of you. But they're using society's status police to do it. And it's hard to get around that, right? They're seeing that, they're making prior assumptions, and little things are adding up. Then what ha- that happens is that that changes life outcomes. People get more money in life, they have better health, health outcomes, um, uh, they're more likely to gain positions of power in society, and that recreates the structure that helps justify the status place. Well, face it, those people, look at them. Look mm-hmm. at all they accomplished those upper-middle-class people versus these working people. Yeah, right. You know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Status makes power and money a self-fulfilling prophecy.
0: But I also liked your your point in the book about social policing, that when people believe that a certain group of people are especially competent, then they want them to be leaders, and they police other people so that they step in line, and that perpetuates conformity. I thought that was a great point. Yes,
1: that's absolutely right. They want them, they believe these people to be leaders, and if the other people cause trouble for them, they basically shut them down. You know, people can turn and say, excuse me, did anybody ask you what you were saying? Can you listen? You know, things of that sort. That's the kind of social policing that can happen.
0: And so why do people comply with this?
1: They comply because uh, we do this largely out of awareness. We're mostly not thinking about it. Right. And because of that... Partly, you might simply be confused. Everybody's turning on you and say, be quiet. You think, why? You know, but it shakes your confidence, right? You step back slightly. You hesitate. Maybe you doubt yourself. But also, we live in this world. We all live in the world. And whether we like it or not, we know the broader status beliefs. Yes. Even if we know them and think, well, I don't agree with that. Still, you know them. And they eat at you. They shake your confidence. You've been treated a certain way. And you... You're not, it isn't your first natural in, impulse to act as though you're a person of privilege. Instead, you hesitate a moment. Maybe they're not calling on me. They don't expect me to do this. And you hold yourself back, and you, you comply without meaning to comply.
0: Yes, and I think this this is something that you brought up in your previous book, framed by gender, and you distinguish between people's internalized ideologies, what they themselves think they're capable of, or what men and women can do, or and also their cultural expectations, what they think, how they think other people will perceive right. and treat them, how they think they will be policed by others. So if they, th- even if they think they're a brilliant leader, if they don't anticipate to be granted that authority. They may not, you know, try because they're just expecting hostility.
1: That's exactly right. And they may not be wrong, by the way, about that hostility. But if you know that that's what you're facing, it's a big disincentive, right? Mm. Uh, No matter how determined you are, it's a big disincentive. Um, And there is just the the power of other people's expectations. Walking in the room, think of it as a stage. If you step out on the stage and you know the audience is hostile, Mm. you know they're hostile, think what that does as you try to perform and do well or stepping out of this st- stage and you have every reason to expect that the ho- that the audience is with you and they believe you and how you can open up and do well and come to your best and get the best performance of your life versus the way you try to perform in front of the hostile audience you know and you feel your confidence shaken That's exactly what it
0: is. And I think one really important and original contribution of this new book, Status, is that you emphasize goals. And so whether people are revered and respected depends on what members within that community, what their goals are at that time. And so when I was reading the book, a couple of examples that like, During World War II, we had Rosie the Riveter, and so women's work was valued at that time for the war effort. Or black GIs might be valued at that time, but as soon as the war was over, women were forced back into the home and black GIs didn't get the respect they wanted. Or for example, in a football team, you might have some brilliant black players and their fans may massively support them, right? They're doing so brilliantly. But outside that context, that same person may be incredibly racist and vote for Trump. Or even that same football supporter, that same football fan, if it's another black American doing brilliantly, but for the other team, they may boo them and be incredibly yeah. racist. So it all depends on the goals of your team the, and someone's contributions towards that goal.
1: Right, and that's that's why status is always... Uh, uh, always relative the context it's always rooted in the given situation and that situation depends the the, uh, group you're in and what its goals are at that moment and if the goals change so does the status and how you're treated um so do the uh, status and in fact there's some evidence you're talking about like black football Mm -hmm. players during the covid thing during um there were some they had to play without audiences interestingly Black players on some teams actually scored better relative to their averages when there wasn't an audience that could boo them, mm. right, um, uh, based on their race, their unexpected race, you know, the enemy side, yes, yes. booing them. Uh, they performed better, right? That's that power of other mm, people's mm. expectations. Yes. Whereas the white players didn't, didn't change their performance, right, because they expected themselves to do well, the audience did too, so they continued to do well with or without the audience. And I think this also
0: helps us make sense of Alport's contact hypothesis. Like some people interpret that as it's just about, you know, jostling together, but it's really about working collaboratively to a shared goal. Absolutely. Because when when people then realize, hey, these are the people, like for example, Matt Lowe has a paper on uh, caste, uh, inter-caste cricket in India, mm-hmm. and you find that when there are inter-caste groups, people realize that lower-caste people are just as good as the Savannah upper-caste, and so they respect and revere them. But it's really dependent on, you know, the realizing, hey, this other person is great for our goal.
1: Exactly right. And and that's why, for instance, uh, the U.S. military uh, integrated more racially than any other institution in the United States. And a lot of that came to, it's not that it's without some racism, I'm not at all saying that, but still it went further and has gone further in some ways than other institutions. And a lot of that is because they're constantly training towards this maximum, um, goal pressure right when you're out there on the battlefield you know it isn't the biggest question in your mind the uh, the race of the guy that's next to you holding the gun right you know you want him to support you and right. you want to support that person and th- that changes everything um in terms of what happens
0: and what i really appreciate about this book is that it's all about perceived competence and so that, so for example, we know that women contribute to collective goals. Like women do a huge amount of social reproduction, women take care of the kids, etc. And that work is fundamental, as we know from Nancy Felber, etc. Yeah. But if one group can convince everybody else that women's work is nothing, then they don't get the status. So for example, uh, my PhD field work was in Zambia. And if a woman was a housewife, they would say, kalafie, which means just sitting. Right, so they just, just deny right? She's yeah. just sitting. Yeah, she's she's not doing anything. Like there's a huge volume yeah, of work, I or in, in rural areas, uh, systematically across the world, the World Bank did this study across thirty uh, low and middle income countries, and they found that women don't even call their work work. Right? So that's yeah. how, how, even if women's work is absolutely fundamental to calorie consumption, to, to survival, for many cultures, you know, for example, it's only really in African societies where we see celebrations around fertility rituals, mm-hmm. where that's glorified and recognized. Mm-hmm. In Anatolian uh, traditions, it was the man gives the seed and that is planted in the field, and the woman's basically doing nothing. Yeah, it's it's, it's all about. Blind, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. But there are so many different. You know, across the world, there are so many different cosmologies about how we come to be, and only in some places is women's contribution recognized. And so, I really like how your book emphasizes that matter of ideological persuasion of what counts as contribution. Exactly, to the group.
1: what counts as a contribution? I mean, you could easily say, like right now, if it's cool to be tech, although maybe that's getting tarnished. <laughs> um, but if it's cool to be tech, that. Um, why is that cooler than something else? Or why was it maybe 20 years ago cool to be finance? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, there was a shift in those fields. Were those the things that are most important to the survival of society, or the happiness of society, or the justice of the society? Not that it isn't important. I'm not saying it isn't important. It's important. But why was that the coolest? So clearly, there's a there's a a certain arbitrariness, cultural development of who was more influential and got their word in first and all that, about that. It isn't a fundamental functional importance.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: It is not closely attuned to fundamental functional importance. You know, obviously that can't be utterly neglected, but it is... You know, there's it isn't matched to fundamental functional importance.
0: No, and I think it's so important. For example, there are so many economists who've used what is called the ethnographic atlas or the standard cross-cultural sample, and they say, oh, you know, in societies where women are. Make an important contribution to the calories, then they have higher status. As and they sort of imply, they presume that where their volume of work is large, then they're going to be revered more. And it's just not the way. No, that's it's just, it's not, just totally not not like that's, that. That's right. It's really a matter of you know women organizing their networks, creating their own cults, revering their own spirituality, etc. You know, feminist resistance that makes a more important difference right. all over the world. Right. And the other, now, here's a question for you. Why does association with high-status people improve status?
1: Well, yeah, yeah. And that, of course, is one of the things that can improve status. Um, and essentially status spreads, right? Because you do assume if these people are high status, then you think that the things that they think are important or valuable, if I admire them and think they've really got it, and they think this thing is really valuable and useful, then I think that's high status. That's like a social influencer, right? right? Uh, that's the definition in some ways, uh, you know, a social influencer. So, um, I, I mean, why is it that an advertising company uh, hires a famous athlete to sell their shoes? you know um because it's going to be better so in the same way that if you become the you know the prize friend or the prize student of a famous high status person immediately people look at you and assume you must be better and you know so that's a good way to get get status and of course that does affect who people try to uh, associate with. But the way there's a difference, explain to me. So I can understand
0: it. Suppose there's a brilliant professor like mm-hmm. you and you tell everyone else, here's my student, David. David is fantastic. Because you have moral authority, people will think, okay, David is good. Explain to me how me buying Michael Jordan's Nike Air Max shoes gives me status.
1: It, it does, precisely because everybody knows these are Nikes. Uh, these mm. Nikes are associated with that um, with that athlete. So, so it, you if the shoes themselves then acquire status Mm -hmm. and then simply wearing them is part of being cool like you know um like being uh, like that athlete
0: okay okay all right now here's a big question for you and i loved this about your book why are women so nice you have this argument that Mm -hmm. as i understand it and you should correct me that people presume that Say, for example, people think that men are naturally more competent at uh, fulfilling and contributing to the group's Mm -hmm. goal, and women are less competent. Mm -hmm. And then they perceive any time a woman is uppity and demands higher status, she's asking for status that she's not really entitled to because she doesn't have that requisite competence. And so in order to compensate for that, the woman will show, yes, I really am contributing to the group's goals because I'm doing all this collective cooperative stuff. And you argue that's why women act, you know, that women may compensate for their attempts to get status by being nice and cooperative so everyone thinks their contributions are their group's goals?
1: Absolutely, um, absolutely. Um, you can say the groups in a way are always a little suspicious of someone who, who, who's trying to claim status because if they're going to give that person status then they give them this power over them and, and they want to be sure they can trust that person. Now, status police might say this guy, he's gonna be great, so they trust him, right? But she's not as good, so why should we trust her? but she wants it maybe for selfish reasons right so she's she's not that great she's just trying to be you know important and famous and make herself bigger than she is so why should I get do this well if she's nice if she says I'm really trying to help the group that's all I really care about see I, I do all this to try to help the group I, I'm nice I'm friendly you know I fix things I make things I take care of other people's problems I I manage everything and then they say oh okay and she can actually give a little more influence than she would otherwise so being nice often buys women influence when they can't get it otherwise
0: so the argument is that people will like and revere those who are good for the group and if they don't think that women are good for the group because they're sexist then they'll like women if they can show they're good for the group through their niceness and cooperativeness exactly,
1: exactly. and that's a huge incentive for women to stay nice uh, you know so
0: it's women are socially rewarded for their niceness
1: absolutely Absolutely, socially rewarded for their, for their niceness. And how do you, I mean, what's the... Uh, if women are socially
0: rewarded for niceness and there's so much resentment of women who are not nice... Then that might even stop women trying to get ahead, right? Because it's it's hard to try to get ahead and be continually cooperative.
1: It absolutely uh, does stop uh, women. Pa- partly, of course, it's it's a double burden mm. to try to walk yeah. the tightrope, yes. as it yes. says, as they say, you both. Because people won't think you're unusually competent or or deserve to be in a powerful position unless you kind of put yourself forward. In our society, there's certain agency in that. I'm mm. looking for the top. I have to go do something. I have to make a move and I've gotta show that this is right and that's not mm-hmm. good. Things like that. So you're gonna have to do that and which is gonna make people suspicious of you. So you also have to be nice. Well that time you're spending being nice is not spending doing the other. And there's that kind of tension. Now women fight that and do that, but um when they, uh, the distance, besides the fact that it, even if they don't care about other yes, people thinking yes. they're not nice, it still takes them time to manage it, because if people dislike you, they'll try to undercut you, um, and there's some great research on this, like secretly sabotaging yes, somebody yes. in an experiment and things like that because they're too demanding. Um, uh, um, uh, things of that sort. You know, they have set up a situation where the woman is put in that highly assertive thing and the person can sabotage them. Then the more assertive they are, the more likely they mm. are to sabotage them. So that's what I mean. There are real costs to that. Um, so partly it's just harder to do and achieve. Um, but the other thing is, it, it's personally costly, yes. right? And certainly women are if they're already not as valued then it's something to say I will I will set myself up to be disliked and not care right
0: yeah this is the fundamental problem and uh the uh, when a woman people if people care about being liked they may forego the reverence that you get with status and preserve the 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 social applause that you get through being nice and you know not being too uppity that's exactly
1: and so they may right. become
0: less competitive because they care about you know being seen as a nice person yes yes i have um an example for you i was recently chatting to a student from india and they were saying that in their hometown the boys would get the girls to do their homework and the girls would do it to be nice and i thought that was such an interesting example because in that example, it's like the boys clearly think the girls are equally competent yes. because they're getting them to do their homework. Yes. And yes. the girls are doing it because they've sort of internalized and they're wanting to get that social approval from the men. So their own concern for niceness and, and male approval is enabling their own exploitation. And I also thought it was interesting in relation to your work because even though they're seen as competent it's not enhancing their status and there's sort of something else going on which is just yeah i know she's competent but i want to exploit her because i can
1: exactly i think i think there there can be that but they they may also feel that even if the girls are just as competent at this skilled task they are still superior yes and they are still the, the you know they're the ones independent of these skills Um, These specific skills. Uh, Those girls study hard, and they have those skills, so that's fine. I don't study so hard, but I could be better than them if I wanted to. But I don't have to. They can do my homework. You know, there's this basic sense that I'm I'm basically superior. It it, it maybe not um, more smarter than that, but that isn't all that counts. I'm the important person who. So what's what's driving
0: that? And I can see bigger examples of it. So for example, in China you know there're a huge very high female labor force participation women doing incredibly well leading country companies being successful entrepreneurs same in russia 44% of senior managers are women but in both China and Russia, women are locked out of politics. So there seems to be like women are seen as equally competent, and clearly they are,
1: mm-hmm. but
0: they're not recognized as having those leadership capacities. Yes,
1: and actually, um, I mean, all the evidence is from the United States. Or there's a little bit of cross-cultural, yes. or Western, anyway, mm. uh, societies, but, uh, on stereotypes. And what has changed in recent years in, in the United States and uh, so, uh, is that women used to be thought to be literally dumber. Dumber, yes, yes. You know, lower IQ points. Um, that is gone. Yes. Women are thought to be every bit as smart. They might be smarter in, a, in the more recent studies, but they don't have that um, kind of a executive authority, that aggressive thing of grabbing the problem and making it happen. And even if your task is is not anything that you would think of as normal mm-hmm. aggression, there's, an, there's grabbing holding of it, in making it and bringing it to a solution. And that that push, that executive authority, that extreme agency, men are still thought to be um, more competitive, um, stronger, you know, in that yes. way. And that's the difference. So what counts is competence. Mm-hmm. Usually what counts the confidence in, in, a, in, a, in status is not simply a skill IQ points, mm-hmm. but the ability to perform for the group right okay and performance for the group involves an element of executive agency as well as skill and talent right you know and it does depend a little bit what you're doing but i often think about that old star trek series with captain picard okay right and they would get to a huge crisis right and what he would turn to his crew and he would say uh suggestions and the crews would shout out things. Do a, you know one? My favorite was do a ridge regression on the plasma manifold, but anyway, which is a big statistical joke. And um, and he would he would say make it so, right? So he, the big powerful leader, actually doesn't seem to have the skills. The crew has the skills, right? But he he's the one who takes them okay. and makes it happen. And. That's that's the thing.
0: Right? right. Okay, so it's not enough to be clever. One needs to exe- exercise that executive authority.
1: That's right. Cleverness exercised for the group in an effective executive way. And these days what's happening on gender is women are kept catching up on mm-hmm. the cleverness, mm-hmm. even surprising men on cleverness, but they're still being greatly doubted it, mm. and the executive authority.
0: Am I right in thinking here you're referring to a paper by Alice Eagley and Linda Carley where they track stereotypes, is that
1: the one? Yes, is there this? is that, yeah, that yeah, recent okay. one we'll like see. that, we'll and there's also some new stuff coming oh, okay. out by a woman. You know, okay. Sorry,
0: uh, okay, now here's now one of my favorite parts of the book. What is the difference between race, gender, and class inequalities?
1: Oh, yes, um, <laughs> that's not an easy question, that's a hard question. <laughs> yeah. um, but first of all, of these social divisions, yes, and of course real people have overlapping locations and all these just things, but separating them out is a general thing. Um, gender is different than all other inequalities because it's the difference within the group, within mm-hmm. the intimate group. Mm-hmm. Almost all intimate groups have members of both uh, yes. genders. Um, uh, and so it is the most immediate thing of when the kid is growing up and the way, the sense they get of, uh, you know, who is different than me? How do I understand that, make sense of this person? Mm. I have to distinguish this person from other things so mm. I can say what they're likely to do. Mm. Then in that kind of categorical learning, one of the first differences that people pick up on is the gender difference. So it has that in within the group thing. And yet on the other hand, when something's within the group, you can only... It, uh, uh, there can be great hostility, of course. We know there can be great misogyny and things like that. Nevertheless, there's an uh, intimate interdependence mm-hmm. that means on a daily basis that can be mass, despite domestic violence yes, and yes. everything else. But then contrast that with race and class. Race is very, is a difference largely between groups. Yes, It's yes. socially constructed, but it's socially constructed to be indicators between groups. And of course, there are interracial households and everything else, but the vast majority of this origins of it and the majority of it had to do with separating people on characteristics and, and seeing them differently. And And in that context, of course, you can have people start out thinking my group is better than your group we're different and my group's better but what ha- something happens to create status beliefs slavery like or something of that sort where one group has more power and control over the structure of the situation can create the image of themselves as more superior and you get a status structure then, then and it's between the groups but there can also be greater hostility right because you don't have that intimate dependence so mm-hmm. you can have uh, you know despising Yes. Yes. um, uh, And stigmatize them. Class is um, different yet because um, class is interaction between people across class in Western societies is almost all mediated by. by occupation yes and so people you know you might have the plumber and the physician mm. um, and the plumber goes to the physician's house and they interact or the or or, or, or goes to the physician's office and they interact mm. but it's all structured by the occupation it's not a personal relation the actual personal class status thing rarely happens which mm. means the groups can can develop broadly different cultural beliefs mm. and even though they all know about each other and they understand the larger hierarchy They can also have more cultural ideas of but we don't buy what you say, you know, mm. you say you um, We have our working-class values, and we think they're you know You guys are the important people and we all agree, but we have our working-class values That's that's easier to happen when groups are really separate. It's hard, like men and women may say, well, that's the way men think, that's mm-hmm. the way the women think. Nevertheless, they live with each other. Yes, you know, There's a way they know it. Versus the difference that can be at, at a class level. Um, now, the, as long as the system keeps working yes. at a class level, the working-class people even if they feel they have their own values and you know we're really good we're really better people mm-hmm. by the mm-hmm. way notice how that's similar to the women where mm-hmm. we may not be as competent we may not do that but we're better mm-hmm. we're good we value our families mm-hmm. those rich people they don't care about their families yes. they're all materialists um, it, it, That's a. You notice that echo the nicer you know we're not as competent but we're nicer mm-hmm. um, But. What happens is when circumstances break down and the one group uh, simply wants to, um, either they feel they're losing status, like's happening basically in, in the United States feel like they're falling you know um, in status and they are going to and other people are being put against them like whites, uh, working class whites, other people are put over them then they may attack those elites who are not respecting their yes. middle position. And there may, you get it one of these things where there's a challenge. You don't necessarily, they won't say the, the uh, higher status people um, um, are right. Again, those are the evil elites. They're trying to put us down in a way that is inappropriate. They don't understand our contribution. And um, then you can get things like the cultural wars that we have now. I wanted to suggest something, building on your own argument, that we value
0: people or we give them status when we perceive them as contributing to our group. And I was thinking about ways in which gender is different, because it's because there, as you say, there's this interaction within the household, and I think that has two important dimensions. One is the emotional ties. And the second is the financial rewards. So for example, in medieval England, women worked alongside their husbands and husbands respected and understood the importance of women's contributions. So for example... Men often bequeathed their, their estates to their wives, recognizing that women were capable and competent to do all this stuff. Right? They're not giving their land to some male relative; they're giving it to their wives to look after their children. But the opposition in medieval Europe really came from guilds, from other men who were competing with women in the labor force and thought they were undercutting them. So within the household, men wanted to the, women to work because they valued, they needed their economic contributions to survive. And the same is true in the 20th century with economic growth. It was, you know. If a woman joins the police force then she'll be sexually harassed and have a really mm-hmm. difficult time in the 1970s for example mm-hmm. but families themselves might be supportive of female employment because they're getting the money from it right
1: Exactly. when right. women
0: goes to work it's exactly helping right. the house buy a nicer car buy a nicer mm-hmm. house contribute mm-hmm. so, so it's always families getting those economic rewards so they brought got the financial incentive mm-hmm. to support some of these changes and then a second point I think is important within the household and that goes back to your point that where the group goal is like let's get a nicer house or uh-huh. let's live, then you value the person who's bringing that in, right? That's right. Even if it doesn't get you all the status, right. you're still more supportive of it. So even That's when women right. work, they still do more of the care work. They're still more right. supported by their people within the household than some random person. Right. And a second I think important aspect is that within the household we develop emotional ties because we care about that other, you know, fathers care deeply about their daughters even in the most patriarchal society. Absolutely, and and in a society whereby girls and women have the opportunity to thrive and are thriving in the labour market or in politics, then then fathers can empathise with their daughters' struggles and want the best for their daughters and understand some of the difficulties their daughters are undergoing and feeling so proud of them. Like there was this nice study showing that uh, fathers of daughters interrupted Janet Yellen less, like they were How less hostile. That? That's great. Read. I've not seen that study. That's great.
1: Mm-hmm. That's yeah. I'm not surprised at that. So,
0: but I think, you know, the difference with class is that you're not contributing to the same goal. The difference with race is you're not contributing to the same goal. So you don't have those emotional ties. Um, That's exactly right. Okay, next question for you. Um, Oh, yes. This is this. uh, Why does racism persist in the U.S.? Uh, Like, for example, one thing I was thinking about is physical threats. So black men are often perceived as dangerous. Like a black man might be assumed to become from the ghetto and to be dangerous. And Elijah Anderson has got a tremendous book on this, Black and White Spaces. And I wonder if if that idea about seeing black men as dangerous, how would, you know, because that's not giving men black men moral authority. It's not giving them any, it's assuming that they're dangerous. And I would wonder how you would sort of put that in your framework.
1: Well, um, I think that actually has to do with... Um, both gender and race and how they're understood. Um, if you think, I talked about those status beliefs, mm-hmm. and those status beliefs are elements or parts of of the stereotype of that group, right? Um, but where, where does that content of the stereotype come from? Well, all kinds of things, but you have to understand um, that, the, that the dominant forms of those beliefs, the ones that most people, everybody knows mm. whether they like them or not, mm. whether they endorse them or not. Everybody knows that's the, that's a stereotypic, yeah. yes. this person or that person. Um, the, the people, the, it, they reflect the position of the most, of the people who have the, the dominant people in society, and that means the most dominant group, white men, right? Well, from that point of view, why, who have the biggest influence on the institutions and things of that sort that have an impact on these beliefs. And from that point of view, the implicit picture in our society in the dictionary besides man is a white man. But by definition, if gender is within his household, it's a white woman, It's over there by the definition of women. But what is race then? race is in some sense becomes a contrast in terms of stereotypic content between men right and it's the white man versus um, various types of men of color and there's some evidence in our society that if the white man is the standard in our society it's been essentially they um, uh, think of themselves as having just right masculinity right and then uh, Asian men are stereotyped as more feminine, mm. not as ideal, mm. and Afri- African American men is more as hyper aggressive and dangerous mm. over in that category, mm. right? So it has to do with the way not simply you're on the bottom, but what's the nature of your position on the bottom, yes. and this is all in the contrast to the to the most dominant group, which is um, white men. So my question
0: is, when, when we think about the persistence of racism, would you think about that in terms of black men being seen as less con- competent at fulfilling the group goals, or would you see it about them being these dangerous threats, this sort of rape hysteria, for example?
1: Well, I think it's it's both, but they are thought to be less competent, but if they were less competent and not aggressive, what's the problem, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I mean? You're, you're in charge of them, they're little wimps over there in the corner. Yes, what yes, are you worried about? Yes. Right? Um, and to some extent, that's, that has been, it can change and has changed yes. historically, but Asian men are put in that category, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you can have them as your medium level, um, they don't have it to be the high level boss, but they, you can have them over there as the medium person and they won't make trouble, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but um, African American men, you know, if they're stereotyped in this way, um, and how they got stereotyped in this way, I think, must have to do with uh, historical. Yeah,
0: absolutely. But, yeah. You know, abs- and I think one has reading really fascinating research. So, if you look at cartoons during the period of slavery, they often portray black American men as these sort of happy, contented buffoons, this sort of Sambo character who doesn't yes. speak, or Uncle Tom, and they're perfectly happy with their slavery. So they're slightly idiotic, and they need our guardianship, and we'll look after them. It was only during Reconstruction where you had black American men being elected to state office, right. where you have electorally successful coalitions right. gaining power and these progressive institutes in your whole manner of reforms that white supremacists, elites really got concerned about this threat to their power, and that's where we see the emergence okay. of these narratives and these myths and these false allegations about black men as sexual predators and this sort of... Uh, did, attempt to divide black right. and white alliances by saying, right. you know, these black men right. are after your wives. And right. so we see that narrative being repeated, Newspaper, white newspapers, white media, fan those lynchings, flames. Lynchings,
1: you get the clan. Yes, exactly,
0: and mm-hmm. 70% of those lynchings were related to accusations of sexual coercion. So that right. whole narrative of a threat is constructed and of course reinforced during segregation, etc., right. as a way to you know, maintain white uh, supremacist elite control and authority. Right. Yes. Right, yes, and They definitely.
1: get defined in that way because of those cultures. I mean, the same thing could have happened historically if it, in other circumstances. Like you could imagine circumstances when um, Asians being brought in, um, uh, coolie labor and so on. You could imagine it as something happening, you know, in that same thing and making that construction. But it went quite the other way. Yes. Right?
0: Okay, final question Why do some group members have higher status? Yeah, that's what I want to understand.
1: Why do you th- what do you think the origins of these status differences are? And why, yeah. why would there be any yeah, kind of status? Yeah, yeah. Why, why do we even care mm. about this? Mm. And I think it really has to do, at a fundamental level, with organizing the group to accomplish goals. Um, and um, the idea, there's always problems of coordination in a group. You know, I mean, imagine you're just a group of um, of college age friends, and you want to go out and get pizza. You could stand on the corner for 20 minutes, saying, "Well, where should we go? I don't know. We could go there. We go mm-hmm. here. Well, is anybody eating there? Well, I don't know. You know, back and forth, back and forth. There's coordination problems. But if you're in the real world and you gotta do things, the group has to survive. Mm. You have to coordinate and be able to do things more effectively then you're going to be quickly look around and Mm. say well who knows more about this even with the pizza Mm. you're the pizza fanatic and Mm. you go out every week for pizza so where's the good places right you're going to look for who can help the group faster Mm. and you pretty quickly try to just to be able to make a decision get Mm. anybody to go along Mm. and move as a group instead of just moving as a mob of dangerous Mm. individuals then you're going to um Look for who has more to offer. Mm, mm, mm. And and presto, changeo, you get yourself a status hierarchy. Right.
0: right. Okay. I'm with you. Okay, yeah. so those are all my questions. Professor Celia Ridgway, thank you so very much. And everyone else, I strongly, strongly recommend her new book, Status. It's absolutely fantastic. It's super original, it's really interesting. There are so many
1: examples, and it really improved my understanding of our world. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I am, by the way, really looking forward to your new (laughs) book. Thank you. Okay.